Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to The Referral. I'm Dr. Curran, a surgeon in the UK, and this is the podcast to listen to if you want those silly nonsense science and health myths online debunked. And it's the place to be for life-changing information that's going to improve your health. And guys, before we dive in, I just want to say this podcast episode contains disturbing themes which may not be suitable for all listeners. This week, we're going to be talking about all things bone and muscle health and joint health. And I'm joined by my personal friend and trauma and orthopedic surgeon, Simon Fleming. So we're going to give you all the good stuff about bones and how to keep it healthy. But also, he is an advocate for patients and staff in the NHS. And we're going to be covering stuff about sexual harassment, bullying, prejudice and racism in the NHS and how you yourself as a patient can advocate for yourself and get the best possible care. It's an arrogant doctor that ignores the power of placebo. Total hip replacement, total knee replacement are basically the two best operations in the world. In the NHS, we have a blame culture, right? Whose fault is it? Who made a mistake? Who, whose head needs to roll? I see things differently. And I've not forgotten about you at home. We've also got crowd science, the bit where you ask me questions. And if you want to get in touch and ask a question, go to thereferralpod.com. Okay, before I talk to Simon, it's time for this. We're into what the health. What the health is going on in the wide world of medicine, science and health. Okay, so this scares the hell out of me and for some reason it always happens in Florida. So I saw a dozen of these headlines in my newsfeed. A Florida man gets a flesh-eating disease and almost loses his leg because he was bitten by a family member, a human. He was at a party and there was some sort of altercation and he was bitten by a fellow human. Not a dog, a human and that is far, far worse. Now, obviously, Donnie went to the emergency room. He was given a tetanus shot. He was given some antibiotics and hopefully the issue would have resolved right there. But by day three, things hadn't improved. His leg became increasingly painful. He had reduced mobility in his leg. It became red, hot and swollen. Without obviously seeing what's going on, this sounds like cellulitis, a skin inflammation or inflammation or infection of the skin. Over the next few days, things kept getting worse, so he needed a repeat trip to the hospital where he was diagnosed with necrotizing fasciitis. That is literally flesh-eating disease. It's usually caused by bacteria like Streptococcus A, Strep A, which can get into the skin and into the bloodstream and literally start destroying your skin and other flesh as well eventually. And as a healthcare worker, this is one of the few things which still causes many people's anal sphincters to flutter. Now, this flesh-eating bug can spread so rapidly, a person might need urgent surgery to start debriding or removing those dead bits of skin. And because the infection progresses so rapidly, it could end up that the person needs an amputation or even worse. Now, in Donnie's case, he was surprisingly lucky. He didn't need an amputation, but almost got there. He just needed several layers of skin and some of the underlying tissue removed surgically. 
The reason this happens, particularly with human bites, is because the human oral cavity contains hundreds of different species of bacteria, which normally, if they're on the surface of the skin or in the mouth, they're usually harmless. But once they breach those defense barriers we have and get underneath our skin, they can cause absolute anarchy. So no matter how pissed off with someone you are, do not bite them. Because as Vin Diesel says, family is family. And that's a wrap for What The Health. Let's get straight into my chat with Simon Fleming. Hello, listeners of The Referral. It's me, Dr. Curran. Are you tired of scouring the internet for medical answers only to end up on shady websites? Is your For You page full of TikTok experts pushing miracle weight loss drugs and superfoods? There's so many myths and nonsensical health advice out there on the internet. But on our weekly crowd science episodes, I'm helping real listeners like you get the truth. Subscribe to the Referral Plus and you'll get access to additional crowd science episodes every week devoted entirely to answering your questions. Plus, as an added bonus, you'll enjoy ad-free listening of all our episodes. You can even try it for free. Just head over to the referral show page on Apple Podcasts and click on the Try Free button at the top of the page to start listening today. Have a question of your own? Visit thereferralpod.com and submit it. There is no question too weird or too awkward for me. So what are you waiting for? Don't let the internet deceive you. Subscribe now to the Referral Plus and start getting answers today. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, nor tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Simon, thank you so much for coming down. I felt like, you know, we've been talking for ages now and we're friends, but this is the first time we're meeting in the flesh. This is one of those proper social media, like, I've known you for ages. So I was trying to explain this to my mum and yeah. she was like, oh, I see. She's, he's an internet friend. I was like, when you say it like that, it sounds weird. <laughs> internet friends. But yeah, he's an internet friend. But now real life as well. So we yeah, can, yeah, exactly. we can take that off. Yeah. Now, so Simon, you are a trauma and orthopedic surgeon. What does that involve? What does a trauma and orthopedic surgeon do on a daily basis and nightly basis sometimes? Yeah, so so trauma and orthopedics, you, you break it down into trauma, so emergencies, and orthopedics, which is more of like the planned bit. Um, and I'm a bone doctor. So, so we take care of... Uh, nearly all the bones in the body. So I don't basically do the head, and that's about it. Mm. Um, and we deal with them when they break, when they wear out, when they get infected. And we also deal with the uh, muscles, tendons, nerves, and all the other bits and bobs that move those muscles that might get damaged or torn. So if you tear your Achilles tendon, that's me, or your biceps, that's me. If you break a bone, that's me. If you get arthritis, that's me. Uh, and and we work with with physios and like our anesthetic colleagues like you do and like in a big team to try and and keep people together. I, I first wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. I was in the Royal London Hospital in the 7-7 bombings. Wow. I was a medical student there and it was, you know, busy and hectic and there's people being brought in from all the tube stations and all the rest. And I remember across the room seeing like this group of people in scrubs in, in like the blue pajamas and they were just being like, do this, do that. And I was like, 
who are they? And someone was like, oh, those are the surgeons. So like the resuscitative surgeons, the people who stop all the bleedy-bleedy, and the reconstructive surgeons, the people who plumb people back together again. And I was like, I want to be that in control of chaos. Mm. And, And the ability for people to come in in a wheelchair screaming, and like two days later, walk out on crutches, that that is what gets me out of bed in the morning from a kind of professional... Yeah, that's exactly bed. the same reason, um, not the 7-7 bombings, but the same reason I got into surgery is because I saw someone with horrible abdominal pain, they found to have appendicitis, the same day the patient feels better and goes home. It suits our ego and our attention span, right? We're like, oh, problem, problem solved, yeah. home. Now, when it comes to dealing with patients with problems, one of the things I like to do on this podcast is give people watching actionable take-homes to improve their lives. You obviously deal with bones. And for anyone listening at home, just a quick primer on bones. Bones are, you know, not just, you know, dead organs. They're alive, they're dynamic, they change with exertion and all these sort of things. And, you know, in terms of, I'm preaching to the choir here, but the individual components of the bone, you know, you've got osteoblasts, which are cells which lay down bone. You've got osteoclasts, which are cells which break down bone. And they work together with the leader, the osteocytes, which kind of plays the bone orchestra and decides, you know, how the bone changes. And it changes various, uh, in various ways, according to various external stimuli. Now, in terms of bone health, there's lots of nonsense out there in terms of supplements and all sorts. What are some very foundational basics that someone can do today and for the next few weeks, months and years to improve or at least maintain bone health? So it's really simple stuff, right? And and you've you've spoken to other people in the kind of fitness world and they say the same things, right? Mm-hmm. If someone's trying to sell you something that claims to be a miracle cure, they're trying to sell you something. The, the miracle cures that, that will make you bigger, stronger, faster aren't a thing, right? Yeah. Um, the, the best things you can do are those common sense things. So uh, regular exercise, especially if it's nice and low impact. So we love a bit of walking. Swimming's great. Cycling's great. Weight work. So actually lifting weights, and this is for all genders, because your bones respond to whatever you do to them. So stress. Bones right. need stress. Exactly. So if you if you do nothing, your bones will not need to be as strong as they are. It's just about doing resistance work with weights. Yeah. It can be low rep. It's about getting some sunshine. So if you can be out outside even just 10 minutes a day, your body will will get that from the sun and then it's a well-balanced diet. And it, and you don't need supplements unless you have dietary problems that require supplements. It's a balanced diet. The supplements that they're, they're, that you need to be more mindful of, so like the one that I get asked about a lot is glucosamine. Mm. People read about glucosamine. It's really good for your joints. So glucosamine is a thing that you find in cartilage. Yeah. Great. Taking glucosamine for your cartilage is like eating kidneys and thinking it will help your kidneys. Like there it, are it people who think that is a thing. If you eat that organ, it'll improve a, that organ. It's not yeah, a, it's, it's not, not a thing. thing. It's like it's it's weird homeopathic yeah. voodoo. Pseudoscience. And 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 the biggest problem you have with with within the musculoskeletal market is just like a lot of other markets, um, often these supplements are targeted at the most vulnerable. Yeah. The people who are the most worried. So it's trash. Glucosamine is not there's, a viable option for humans. It, it's just there's no evidence for it, right? Yeah. Now 
what you can say is, if, if taking your glucosamine makes you feel safer or stronger or better, and you can afford it, go for it. Yeah. It's not going to do you any harm. It's also not going to really do you any good, yeah. right? Yeah. So Placebo effect. Placebo effect is great. Love the placebo effect, especially in musculoskeletal stuff. Yeah. Like, if something makes you feel like you're in less pain and you can do more, and it's an arrogant doctor that ignores the power of placebo, right? It's why it's so important that we speak to our patients, listen to our patients, lay hands on our patients, because they feel better. It's why when those, you know, uh, snake oil salesmen come out and try and sell you homeopathy, they go, look, my patients feel better. Yeah. Well, yeah, because you gave them a glass of water and you listened to them for 45 minutes, and of course they feel better. Yeah. Placebo effect is a powerful thing. Now, osteoarthritis, it's typically seen as this old person disease, but, you know, we've seen more and more young people have the disease. If someone in their 40s, for example, had quite severe osteoarthritis, so had inflammation of the knee, had erosion of the knee joint where the cartilage was almost giving way and it's causing significant pain on walking and every day of their life, and they're 40, is that a time to have a knee replacement, given that knee replacements on average last 20-ish years? Or should they do everything else they can before surgery, non-surgical options, physio, medication, injections, and then when it's just almost unbearable, then they have surgery? Or should they get surgery early? So this is one of those like controversial topics. Uh, and... and it's because there are some people who you you know they're going to have a, a knee replacement or hip replacement. Like, that's in their future. Yeah. And so this old idea that you had to, like, earn your arthroplasty, like, you had to crawl on your hands and knees in being like, I, I want to die, chop my leg off. That's when you're ready. Okay. Like, you've got to be ready for the... Uh, that's so out of date. Yeah. What you need to do is have a conversation with the patient around the benefits, risks, and alternatives of all the options. And you, you can obviously guide them because you know more about certain things than they do but you need to explore it with them. So if you are uh, a 40-year-old who does a sedentary job and you don't have much pain, but your x-rays look bad, again, the, the classic ortho thing was we used to treat x-rays. You know, someone, mm. would, someone would show you an x-ray and you'd go, knee replacement. So treat the patient, not the scan. Absolutely. And, and, and general surgery is the same, right? You yeah. don't just look at a CT scan and do an operation. You go meet them and you talk to them and you say... Yeah. What's up? It's on a case-by-case case basis. Right. And so there are some patients who have catastrophic osteoarthritis. Their bones are just like like when your car brake pads are gone. It's just mm. all grinding and graunchy and making noises. And they go, it's all right. And you go, really? They go, well, I don't cycle anymore, but I swim now. And uh, yeah, I have to take paracetamol in the morning and codeine at bedtime. But it's all right. And you're like, all right, cool. Um... I'll leave you well alone then, shall I? Yeah, yeah. And then you get patients who come in and they're like, I'm done. And and the the bit with the the kind of the before the operation bit, the prehab, if you mm. like. So rehab is the exercise you do after. More and more we're aware that and people think we're fobbing them off, right? Yeah. Patients go, Oh, it's 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 because of the postcode I live in, or it's because of the waiting list. More and more we're learning that doing prehab, rehabilitation before your before surgery, surgery, gets you a better outcome. You build your muscles up, you get really strong, you get your balance really good, you, you're in the you're in as fighting fit as you can be before you have this really, really big surgery that's going to slow you down. Yeah. It makes you in a better place to do your rehab. Yeah. That's the thing, people with osteoarthritis, and generally the societal view of osteoarthritis, is that 
you shouldn't exercise because your joints are already, you know, grinding against each other, as it were, and you shouldn't exercise. But actually, exercise is beneficial for the prehab, rehab, as well as just general building the proprioception or the coordination yeah. and balance around the joint, the surrounding muscles, ligaments, tendons. So actually, in osteoarthritis, even though exercise may be painful, it is in the long term beneficial. And that's a myth that and, it's and not Right, good. absolutely. So, so osteoarthritis, everyone talks about it being like wear and tear. Yeah, there is a wear and tear facet, but we actually know that it's probably a mixture of there's some probably some inflammatory stuff going on. Yeah. There's definitely some genetic stuff going on. There's probably some weight stuff going on. Mm. There's and so you have to manage all of those things. And so, if someone comes in with osteoarthritis, telling them stop, stop just go and lie down in bed, yeah, is yeah. is just the worst thing because. The, one of the biggest problems with osteoarthritis is things stiffen up. Mm. They become more and more kind of clunked together. And the last thing you want is stiffer and stiffer joints because the stiffer your joints are, the less you can move, the more pain you have. And also, fundamentally, the next steps of your surgery, if you need surgery, are harder. We want nice joints that move yeah. so that we can just take out the arthritis -y bits and give you a nice new shiny metal or plastic bit. And so... You're absolutely right. That myth of don't don't do anything is 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 flawed. Saying that painkillers are your friend. Anti-inflammatories are our first line, and they for some people they change their life. Yeah. You know, some ibuprofen, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and they're like, everything's fine. You like, need a repeat. There you go. Right. Yeah. But but there's it's a very British thing as well, right? Uh, people don't like tablets, or I, I'm cheating, or a lot of people with arthritis think that by taking painkillers they're masking damage. That's Do you know good. what I mean? We, we want that. But, they, but want... they feel like they're kind of, you know, they've sprayed some WD-40 on their brake pads, yeah. but they're still braking their car. And you're like, no, no, no. This arthritis is happening no matter what you do. Why would you be in pain just just cause? You're not yeah. masking anything. It's just about reducing that inflammatory process, letting you be more mobile, letting you get on with your life. Because the surgery we offer is pain relieving. Mm. So, so total hip replacement, total knee replacement are basically the two best operations in the world in terms of pound for pound, value for money, getting people back to the workforce. Improving quality of improving life. Improving quality of life. It's basically us and cataracts yeah. for cost benefit and how happy patients are after their operation generally. But it's a pain relieving operation because we take the thing that causes pain, arthritis, we get our Black & Decker gear out, we take out the arthritis, we throw it in the bin, we give you a new metal one. That metal one, and you touched on it, that metal one will never be as good as the one nature gave you. It's just it's just not. We still aren't there yet. But they last 20 or 30 years. So yeah, we're now seeing people, because we, we don't have to do as big an operation as we used to. It used to be that we had like a one-size-fits-all hip replacement, knee replacement. We now can do half-knee replacements. So oh. if you have arthritis on the inside of your knee, we can replace just the inside of your knee. So lots of young people get that wear on the inside of their mm. knee because that's where it starts. It's where it pretty much nearly yeah. always starts. And so we'll say to a young person, if they've got really bad arthritis there, we can replace half your knee, leave the other bit as, as nature intended. And yeah, in 20 years' time or 30 years' time, as and when or if needs must, we can take that half one out and put in a whole one. And patients are like, oh... Really? Yeah. So there are loads of different options and you can have those conversations about pros and cons and what the rehab looks like. And yeah, if we're doing a half a knee replacement, you're more likely to need more surgery. 
But there's kind of a confounder there, which is, of course you are, because we're probably doing it in younger patients mm. who are more likely to be doing more and live longer, whereas we're less likely to put them in, you know, someone who's a lot older. We might just give them the one operation that we know works and it's given them a great outcome. So so there's loads of kind of nuance there, but it is, it is all basically fancy carpentry. Obviously, apart from your day job of being an orthopedic surgeon, you also do a lot of advocacy for patients, for staff in the NHS. And obviously, as people have been in the NHS for several years now, we know the morale is at an all-time low at the moment. We know about the bullying. But actually, there's something interesting. There's an article that you put me onto, and I just want to read a quote from that article. And this shocked me to my core yeah. and, and sickens me. Even thinking about it now, listen to this. NHS Trust recorded more than 35,000 cases of rape, sexual assault and harassment, stalking and abusive remarks between 2017 and 2022. So 35,000 cases in five years, but only one in 10 trusts has a dedicated policy to manage the problem. And this is harassment and abuse, staff on patient, patient on staff, patient on patient, and visitor on patient and staff and vice versa. Everyone is abusing everyone and not much seems to be done about it. And that those are underreported statistics. What the F is going on yeah, it's. I mean, it's. It's one of those things that uh, that I think the the article talked about it being kind of army two movement, and I've I've been privileged enough to be involved in a lot of this work since since day one. Uh, look, the the thing with healthcare is it's it's simultaneously this special little world with with little silos and little tribes, and and it's kind of protected in its own little bubble, but also it's just people. Yeah. It's just people doing people things. And so within society, we have people who are abusive and who are nasty pieces of work and who thrive on the suffering of others. And, and again, you've got to remember that there's, there's also this nuance from the most awful, horrendous things like, like rape, which is a crime and awful, all the way down to um, certain facets of, of sexual harassment that are equally bad, but on that spectrum, right? So that could be uh, an inappropriate joke an inappropriate comment. And the 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 thing that exists in healthcare nearly is nearly more than anywhere else. You see it a bit in uh think places like the military, for example, and the and the police is a perfect example. Yeah. Is it's about power and and trust and the abuse thereof. And there's so much power and trust in healthcare. And and you and I both have it, right? We we talk about it often, like yeah. our privilege that people share things with us and trust us to make decisions. But also within the world we live in, that there are these power dynamics that mean these behaviors can both happen and they go unreported because the people who do them have power or perceived power over those people, right? So consultants over over junior doctors or student doctors, uh and the problem we have is no one really wants to deal with it because it's really uncomfortable and it means it means you can't deal with it a bit you can't sort of deal with rape you can't kind of deal with sexual assault you either deal with it properly or you brush it all under the carpet and just hope it goes away and that's what came out of the the article you're quoting is a lot of these trusts are like well we just deal with it in house and you're like okay cool what is that but they're not dealing with it in-house. No, no. It's, it's, 
obviously I'm not I'm not saying you're a bad man, but like it's like Karen, can we can we have a chat off the record? We'll just have yeah. a chat. Um, someone has said that you uh, you did this this and this, yeah. and um, I was sure it's nothing, but uh, we should probably have a meeting and talk. And and there's no paper trail, and there's no there's no evidence. There's no evidence, and and similarly, there's there's often no consequences for the person who's being reported about and otherwise, and and there's no support. There's no because you might say that didn't happen, mm. as is your right. There's no policies and strategies beyond, you know, the law. Yeah. Um, our colleagues in human resources are are swamped. But often human resources department's job is to protect that organization rather than to protect uh, staff or patients. Their, their job is to keep the, the trust or the NHS ticking over, which is why so much is done in-house. Even now we're talking about, like in the in the in the real world where we're trying to solve some of these problems, we're talking about how to create robust, anonymous reporting systems. And people throw their hands in the air and go, oh, but what about vexatious reporting? Look, it it hardly ever happens. It does, but it really, really doesn't happen anywhere near as often as people think. And what you need is there's um, there's a system in Australia, well, I think the psychiatrists have it. So if you have um, three anonymous reports about mm-hmm. a same person, and this data is like held in a protected place, three anonymous reports immediately mandates an investigation, right? Right, uh, And it goes through like a triage process. And, but it means that, that these people who have experienced these horrendous things can report anonymously and trust that it will be taken forward rather than what normally happens, especially when there's a power dynamic where they go, well, look, we've got this very junior student nurse and we've got this very senior mm. doctor or we've got this... This patient with the, the classic one again from the article, we've got this patient with mental health problems. You know what they're like. Mm. And then we've got this very respected doctor. And you're like, well, you're immediately stigmatizing them and silencing yeah. them. And and we know how this is going to play out. And so that anonymous reporting system again is is so vital because if you're if you're a creep, you are reliant on the fact that even if someone does go they did something, you can go, really? Me? We, yeah. we, we saw it in Hollywood, right? That's why everyone talks about this being me too. And it's because it was it was like the NHS, it was a monopoly employer. You either work in Hollywood or you don't work in movies. In the UK, you either work in the NHS or you don't work in healthcare. Like that's that's the system. So so all those systems allow you to be like, well, Karen, you could of course mess with me, but then maybe I won't sign that form. Yeah. And you like, have leverage to right. ruin someone's career. Absolutely. So I mean, obviously, you know, there's lots of issues going on with staff at the moment. Uh, but, you know, the middle of it is the people, the population we're trying to protect, patients. Now, you know, one of the things I commonly see online when I talk about certain taboo areas or topics that patients feel that doctors don't, don't take seriously, you know, gynecological health, endometriosis, mental health, and all sorts of chronic issues mainly. And they feel gaslighted by doctors often that they're not taking their concerns seriously, their symptoms seriously. And they feel sometimes almost restricted by the system that they feel they can't get a second opinion or get any further opinions. If a patient were to advocate for themselves, what would you say is absolute powers that they do have to advocate for themselves and get further opinions and actually, you know, take control of their own healthcare destiny um, you know, without 
you know, seeming like they're breaking any rules or, you know, breaking the traditional dogma. And 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 you've hit the nail on the head, right? It's it's that traditional, it's it's ego and it's power and it's uh, you know, I know the answers yeah. and I'm right. And actually what we know is um shared decision making, in other words, where you and the patient work out the best way of doing things is the best way of doing yeah. things. The doctor's happy, the patient's happy, and they literally get better outcomes. Like there's science, there's graphs. Now if your patient goes, I'd like a second opinion, yeah. or uh, I'm not sure about that, can I speak to someone else? The smartest move is to go, absolutely, how can I help you with that? Okay. You want referral to another colleague? You want to see someone in another hospital? You, Because that patient, again, will actually go, really? And you're like, yeah, absolutely. I've And, and so I, I'm very open with my patients, and I, I try very hard to have a growth mindset because I don't think you can do our job and not, be like, I've got so much to learn. I'm always learning. It's why even in our hospitals, we have um, MDTs, multidisciplinary teams, right? Yeah, we Where, bring in various Yeah, experts. right? You phone a friend and you go, I think it's this. But I'm not 100%. Anyone, any thoughts? Any? It's, it's, it's got real pub quiz energy of like, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? The next step, if they, if they really want to do it, is is we have pals in in hospitals, yeah. which is our, our patient advice and liaison service. It's it's the complaints hotline, yeah. right? Because in the NHS we have a blame culture, right? Whose fault is it? Who made a mistake? Who whose head needs to roll? I see things differently. What we need is learning and growth with some accountability at the other end. So if I can't give you the care that you think you deserve, chances are I think the same. Chances are I'm just as frustrated as I'm sure you are with scans and waiting lists and clinic times and dan, 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 right? Yeah. So I'm like, do you know what? You should you should go tell someone. In fact, I will walk you to the pal's office mm. and you can say, I've waited for months and months and months for my scan and it got cancelled for this reason and I'm not happy. Because you know what? I'm not happy either. And what we need to do is not throw a wobbly, throw our toys out the pram, start shouting and pointing fingers. What we need to do is have a system whereby the patients help us and we help the patients do better. Yeah. In the system we work in, which is beautiful and glorious and free and also flawed and kind of on fire and a bit of a, you know, a bit of a swamp. And so we need to find those ways of working within the system we have. So when patients are like, I'm not happy. I'm like, yeah, me, me either. How, let's let's try and make something work. Simon, um, before I let you go, you had a question for me. Well, yeah. So it was because we've been talking about culture loads, and and you know that I do all this stuff around kind of bullying, undermining, harassment, and it's interesting because we've spoken before about you having privilege and being and being a man but also we've spoken about the fact that you're a person of color and and all that sort of stuff and and the stuff we both do sometimes doesn't always make us friends within certain communities so i guess my question was do you have experiences of some of this stuff that we're talking about the kind of the bullying or the discrimination or harassment or have you just kind of floated above it all or or are you not aware of it is it one of those things where it's only when you reflect and you go oh actually yeah, um, I came to the UK when I was five years old. Um, so I've been living in the UK for 28 years. So I feel like I was born and brought up in the UK. But still, you know, when I first came to the country in 1995, the UK was a different place back then. Um, and 
obviously it's become increasingly multicultural over the last 30 years. But back then, and even now, I still face the odd bit of racism. Uh, and one specific example would be I went down to the emergency room to see a patient with abdominal pain. The, you know, one of the A&E doctors, the emergency room doctors called me and says, we've got a patient with pancreatitis and inflammation of the pancreas. Can you come and see them? I go down, I go and see the patient and I'm trying to initiate a conversation to you know, ascertain what's happening. The patient initially was closing his eyes. He looks at me and says, oh, oh, I don't want one of you talking to me. And I immediately said, that's no problem at all. I saw that the patient wasn't in any immediate life-threatening emergency. His blood pressure, pulse, everything was completely stable. And he was in the emergency room with lots of other doctors and nurses there. So he's a stable environment. This patient obviously has openly stated that he doesn't want someone of my color uh, seeing to him. So I tell the nurse, this is what he told me. And I said, I'm not going to see the patient because he's basically refused to see me. The nurse, right, this is the worst bit. The nurse goes to the patient and says, oh, don't worry, love, we'll find you someone else, no problem. So, you know, that's where the institutionalization of yeah, racism right. and normalization of this bias and prejudice comes in. I was more annoyed at that nurse than the patient because instead of saying that is inappropriate uh, action or word, sir, you can't speak to, you know, staff like that, she has actually apologize to the patient that I have even, you know, deemed that I should come and see this patient. And I just left it as that. And now, you know, I've just got such thick skin that I don't even care. I just do my job. And if someone's racist towards me, I just keep it quiet and walk away. Because Isn't that the problem, right? That is you've the problem. Just, you've just learned that it is what it is. Yeah. And you get into that thing where, where you're not like the nurse, right? But it's that idea of like what you permit, you promote right yeah. so because the nhs is what it is and we do our job the way we do it so many of us learn to just just take it so my 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 system is is this um there are certain things that excuse you certain behaviors and by excuse i mean i will still treat you so life and limb yeah so if you're dying or your limbs are going to drop off if you have some kind of pathology or illness that changes personality in some way. Changes so, your mental state. Right, your mental state if in some way. If you're drunk, if you're inebriated, but, intoxicated, but, but in drugs. But I'm, I'm thinking more like uh, certain infections, yeah. delirium, yeah, 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 yeah. dementia. Um, and when it comes in particular to uh, the gender of your doctor, if you're having an intimate examination. Yeah. Otherwise, if it's not those things, if you behave in a certain way, I think everyone deserves an opportunity to have someone try and explain to them like this isn't how it is this 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 isn't these behaviors aren't acceptable anymore if those behaviors persist and i have kicked patients out of my hospital yeah i've i've experienced anti-semitism and it's a very similar thing and 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 the part of the big body of work around all the stuff is just empowering everyone staff and patients alike i've had patients stand up for me mm. with other patients empowering everyone to be that active bystander and just be like, Karen, I, I heard what that patient said and it's not cool. And if you need me to back you up or... And even that instantly changes the tone from um, they are untouchable, they can get away with it. Because again, it's a power thing. Yeah. You, can't, you can't challenge a patient's behavior because they're the patient. Yes, you can. Of course you can. They're, they're still human beings with all of the consequences and accountability that comes with behaving in a certain way and saying a certain thing. Yeah. Simon, 
I think we've covered a lot of really juicy stuff here and hopefully some important information that people can take I home. So. And um, uh, now that I've met you for the first time, hopefully we can uh, go and get some good steak together that you promised me that time. Yeah, steak sounds good. Thank you very much. There's a lot of stuff which we covered there which doesn't ever see the light of day and that was a great deep dive with Simon Fleming and now if it ducks like a quite the bit where we bust myths, nonsense and pseudoscience. If it ducks like a quack. If it ducks like a quack, this is the bit where I debunk all those myths and misconceptions about health, science and medicine. And the first one is all about what we've been talking about today, bones. Cracking your knuckles increases your chances of getting arthritis. Now this one is a total myth. The popping sound you hear when you crack your knuckles is basically tiny micro bubbles popping in the synovial fluid. Synovial fluid is the fluid which lines and lubricates your joints. Each time you bend and crack your knuckles, you create negative pressure which causes those bubbles inside your wrists and your joints to burst. And you have these same bubbles and same synovial fluid in all of the joints in your body, in your neck, in your arm, in your legs, including your fingers. In fact, there have been several studies demonstrating that cracking your knuckles does not make any difference to whether you develop arthritis or not. And they've compared people who crack their knuckles and people who don't crack their knuckles. And there's been no differences in rates of developing arthritis. And cracking your back also doesn't cause arthritis, but I should mention this is the big but, do not go and see a chiropractor to crack your back. Do not do that, ever. So this next myth touches a topic we're going to be covering next week, all about stomas and bowel health. If you have a stoma, which is basically a bag which collects urine or feces, you can't do any heavy exercise. Now, this is quite a nuanced one because it depends on the type of surgery you've had, how long you've had your stoma for, and what type of exercise you're planning on doing. I deal with lots of patients who've had major bowel surgery and who've got a stoma, a feces bag or a urine bag on the surface of their skin. Now, if you've had major abdominal surgery and you've got big cuts through the muscle layers, clearly you can't be doing any intense or strenuous activity straight away. And if you've got a stoma, you've essentially got a hole in your abdominal wall where the intestines have to come out through. So there's a natural hole and a natural weakness there. So every time you strain, you're doing heavy lifting, very aggressive, you know, intense exercise, you increase the risk of parastomal hernias. These are hernias which can creep around the stoma. So the contents from the inside of your abdomen can sneak past the stoma potentially. Now, it's almost guaranteed that in 100% of patients with stomas, they will develop some degree of parastomal herniation or a parastomal hernia. And if you do plan on doing any specific intense exercise regimes with a stoma, you need to see a rehabilitation coach and work with a PT, personal trainer or fitness trainer that has experience dealing with patients with stomas so you know what to do and what not to do and more importantly, how to stay safe. This doesn't mean that you can't deadlift, you can't squat, you can't do intense exercise. You can do all of that and more, but it needs to be done carefully. Okay, so this one's been doing the rounds on TikTok and social media in general. Air fryers are toxic. 
Now, chances are, if you're listening to this, you have an air fryer. I certainly have one and I love it. It's an absolute game changer. But there are genuine concerns from people generally who try to fear monger you that these air fryers are toxic because of the non-stick coating. When we think about non-stick materials, we think of polytetrafluoroethylene, all of these things that we associate with plastics and forever chemicals. And generally, it's appreciated, and the evidence suggests as well, that these forever chemicals and plastics could be harmful for our health, could interact with our hormones, and do a number of chronic things which we're still collecting evidence for. But the thing with air fryers is that these non-stick coating materials don't really leach into the food unless you plan on eating your air fryer. And I should put a public service announcement out there. Do not eat your air fryer or eat your air fryer linings. In fact, most people use linings when they use an air fryer. And actually, if the surface of the lining is intact, it's not damaged, you're not using abrasive scrubbing materials to clean it, and you use either wooden or silicon utensils when you're using your air fryer, it should be fine. And there is very little robust evidence to suggest that using cookware like air fryers causes any long-term impact to health. Okay, that's If It Ducks Like a Quack over for this week. Before we go, it's time for you to ask me questions in crowd science. This week, we have a lovely question from Sophie from the Philippines. Do sex and masturbation actually relieve menstrual pain or is it just a placebo effect? I've heard a lot of anecdotal evidence for this one, but I'm not sure if there's a scientific basis for it. Great question, Sophie. Let's delve straight into the science. So when someone has sex or masturbates and they reach climax, there's a release of various chemicals inside our body from endorphins, which are natural painkillers and you know mimic substances like opioids, which can help to dampen pain and relieve pain. There's also things released like oxytocin and dopamine. And all of these interact with other neurotransmitters and the reward pathways in our brain to provide some degree of pain relieving ability. And there is some evidence which suggests that these may indeed help to at least offset some of the pain associated with menstrual cramps and period pain, which is usually mediated by the chemical prostaglandin, which causes that pain sensation. But also it's worth noting that this isn't a cure-all for menstrual pain or period pains. And I've said this before on my social medias, and I'm gonna say it again. If you have period pain that is debilitating, impacting your everyday activities, causing you not to function and ruining your quality of life, that is not normal and could be an indication of an underlying gynecological issue and you should get seen by your doctor if you're experiencing those kind of severe pains. Sophie, that was a fantastic question. Now, if you at home want your question answered in crowd science, get in touch at thereferralpod.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you hit the follow button for even more health advice and actionable tips at zero cost. And preferably give me a five-star review because I know you absolutely loved the science gasm. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Referral. Yes, I am a real doctor, but it's important to know that if you require any medical advice or urgent attention, please contact your own doctor. And remember, nothing on this show is intended to provide or replace specific medical advice that you would otherwise receive from your own doctor. 
This has been a Sony Music production. Production management was Jen Mystery, videos by Ryan O'Meara, studio engineer was Matthias Torres, DOP Charlie Moore, music by Josh Carter, Grace Lakewood and Hannah Talbot were the producers, and Gaynor Marshall and Chris Skinner are the executive producers.